This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Alive, that, uh, is part of the, this year-long series on the Catholic peacemaking tradition. And this is the uh, third speaker in the series. So we're grateful that you're here, and we hope that this afternoon will be uh, very important, not only uh, in light of what you're studying in your classes, but also personally in your own life, uh, how to deal with um, uh, nonviolence and, and the spirituality of nonviolence. I ask that you uh, remain seated for the duration of the talk, uh, at courtesy of our speaker who came along with us in Notre Dame. And, uh, She'll speak for about 45, 50 minutes, and then open up the questions. And if some of you desperately need to leave then for dinner or whatever, I ask that you leave uh, quietly. In other words, you have to hold your seats or else they bang, and it's very distracting for the rest. So um, thank you for your kind attendance, and thanks for coming. At this point, I'd like to introduce uh, Carol Anthony from the Center for Peace and Justice Education, who will introduce our speaker. And I hope you have a good afternoon. Thank you. Hey, Mark. Um, and unless you have a direct line to the Almighty, can you turn your phones off? Oh, so they, because I always forget, so they don't go off during the, the lecture, okay? Uh, unless you have a direct line, you know, to the Almighty, then you can. Um, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to uh, introduce the speaker and on this most incredibly important topic. Uh, Dr. Margaret File holds a joint appointment in the Theology Department and in the Center for Social Concerns at the University of Notre Dame. She's a faculty fellow of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, and her <coughs> research interests include Catholic social thought, racial justice, ecological ethics, ecumenical dialogue and peace studies. And it seems like you've had a very, very rich, productive couple of years because she just had uh, co-edited um, a, a work, Violence, Transformation, and the Sacred. They should be called Children of God with Tobias Winwright. That came out this year, right? And with Gerald Schlabach, she is co-editor of Sharing Peace. Mennonites and Catholics in Conversation, that's forthcoming from Liturgical Press. And with Laurie Cassidy and Alex McEwitch, she is co-author of The Scandal Avoid Complicity in U.S. Hyper-Incarceration, A Nonviolent Spirituality of White Resistance. She is also co-founder and resident of the St. Peter Claver Catholic Worker Community in South Bend, Indiana. Please welcome Dr. Martin Fyde. Well, um, is this okay, sound-wise? Okay. It's such a pleasure to be here at Villanova again. I've been here a few times as a visitor and um, as a collaborator with Barbara and Carol and others. So uh, thanks for your hospitality. It's great to be back here. And what I'd like to do today is to share with you um, some thoughts about the spirituality of nonviolence um, focused on the issue of hyper-incarceration of people of color in the United States. Uh, 
Carol mentioned this forthcoming book uh, um, that I have worked on with Alex Mikulich and Laurie Cassidy. And my part of the book is the spirituality of nonviolence. Um, and I'd like to begin by just tying this in with Pachamanteris, which I understand is the theme of this series, uh, marking the 40th anniversary of Pachamanteris. So in this text, blessed Pope John XXIII invites contemplation of the signs of the times. And key to his approach is the question of participation in public discourse. Following his lead, we might ask, whose voices are heard in the political discourse of our daily lives? Whose interests are at stake and are those persons being fully heard? Are they able to exercise the right and duty of participation in shaping the common good? These questions could be used for discernment as we consider what the moral order of truth, justice, charity, and freedom would entail in our own time. And as you, as you already know, those are the four main categories by which John XXIII organized this document, truth, justice, charity, and freedom. I think one of the most urgent and yet strangely neglected issues of social justice in our own time is hyper-incarceration. That is the grossly disproportionate imprisonment of people of color in the United States. And here I'm quoting from Alex Mikulich's first chapter of our manuscript. Uh, he writes, the United States incarcerates more people than does any country in the world, including China. Whereas Canada imprisons 116 people for every 100,000 adults and children, and Russia 628 per 100,000. The US incarcerates 750 people per 100,000. In 2007, nearly 2.3 million people were housed in US prisons and jails, and more than 7.3 million were in the criminal justice system. If we look back at any point in the period between 1925 and 1975, the United States incarcerated only one-tenth or one percent of the US population, about 100 Americans out of every 100,000. Beginning in the 1970s though, both state and federal prison populations boomed. The number of inmates in state prisons grew 708 percent between 1972 and, and 2008. Unquote. In our forthcoming book, we refer to hyperincarceration because the United States incarcerates African American and Latino men at rates highly disproportionate to their overall proportion in the population. Since the passage of civil rights legislation in 1965, the U.S. prison population has reversed from two-thirds white to 70% minorities. The Pew Center on the States reports that white men who are 18 or older are incarcerated at the rate of one in, of every 106, Hispanic men at the rate of one in 36, and black men at the rate of one in 15. Black men between the age of 20 and 34 are incarcerated at the rate of one of every nine. One of every nine black men between the ages of 20 and 34. If we were to imagine saying that about white men, our society would be calling this an epidemic. I, I argue. African Americans bear the disproportionate burden of the prison boom, making up more than 40% of the current prison population, while comprising only 12% of the total US population. 
Over a lifetime, nearly one in three black men and well over half of black high school dropouts will spend some time in prison. These estimates suggest that young black men are more likely to go to prison than attend college, serve in the military, or in the case of high school dropouts, be in the labor market. For the nation's most marginalized groups, prison has now become a normal and anticipated marker in the transition to adulthood. Although American hyperincarceration has emerged as a system of social control unparalleled in world history, it still tends to be described as a criminal justice issue as opposed to a racial justice issue or a civil rights concern. The task of making whiteness visible is an essential aspect of confronting white complicity in hyperincarceration. Barbara Applebaum writes, quote, white complicity connects individuals to systems in which the privileges of some are relationally predicated upon the unjust exclusion of others. White people perform and sustain whiteness continuously, often without conscious intent, often by doing nothing out of the ordinary, unquote. To make whiteness visible and to encourage white people to interrogate our own complicity in racial oppression, Applebaum suggests posing this question. How might I be complicit in sustaining rather than challenging systemic oppression and white privilege? And specifically, how might I be complicit in sustaining rather than challenging the system of hyperincarceration in the United States? Answering these questions will unfold as a process and will require development of a deep contemplative awareness of the interrelated personal and social dimensions of the structural sin of white superiority and its particular institutional manifestations, including but not limited to the system of hyperincarceration. So as a white theologian, I ask, in the face of hyperincarceration as an urgent sign of our times, as a systemic violation of justice, corrosive to the deep peace of right relationship envisioned in Pachamanteras, what might a spirituality of nonviolent resistance look like? Writing in 1743, a young Quaker named John Woolman recounted the experience of being asked by his employer to draft a bill of sale for another Quaker to take possession of a slave. He writes, the thing was sudden, and though the thoughts of writing an instrument of slavery for one of my fellow creatures felt uneasy, yet I remembered I was hired by the year, that it was my master who directed me to do it, and that it was an elderly man, a, man, a member of our society, who bought her. So through weakness I gave way and wrote it, but at the executing of it, I was so afflicted in my mind that I said before my master and the friend that I believe slave keeping to be a practice inconsistent with the Christian religion. This in some degree abated my uneasiness, yet as often as I reflected seriously upon it, I thought I should have been clearer if I had desired to be excused from it as a thing against my conscience, for such it was." Unquote. Faced with a similar situation sometime later, Woolman wrestled with the awkwardness of refusing to write the will of a slave owner, only to find tremendous spiritual consolation in his chosen path of integrity. He writes, I spake to him in the fear of the Lord, and he made no reply to what I said, but went away. He himself had some concerns in the practice, and I thought he was displeased with me. In this case, I had a fresh confirmation that acting contrary to present outward interest from a motive of divine love and in regard to truth and righteousness, 
and thereby incurring the resentments of people, opens the way to a treasure which is better than silver and to a friendship exceeding the friendship of human beings." Unquote. Woolman's experience lifts up a number of points to consider in relation to the spirituality of nonviolence. First, 12 years after Nate Turner's rebellion, the practice of slavery was so culturally and legally normative for white people that even self-professed members of one of the traditional Christian peace churches, the Quakers, could sell black human beings among themselves seemingly without difficulty, moral or otherwise. This practice represented an assumed part of white habitus, white culture. As the anti-racist scholar and activist Joseph Barnt notes, they inhabited the context of colonial America, shaped by the two main ideological principles of colonization, white supremacy and the function of people of color in service of white people. Second, in light of this context, Woolman had to correlate his emerging dilemma of conscience with the reality at hand and make a case to his employer explaining his refusal to broker yet another sale of a black person. Only with considerable effort was he able to elicit from his fellow Christian pacifist some admission of concerns in the practice of slavery. Evidently, slavery did not qualify as a violent institution and therefore something Quakers at the time would reject as a violation of their faith commitment. What constituted the moral ground of reality for these two Quakers? The broader social, cultural, economic, political, and legal context not only condoned, but facilitated as a normative, as normative the practice of slave trading among white people. Having long before been conferred the status of normativity in the dominant white culture, its morality seemed beyond question. More than two centuries later, offering insight into the civil rights movement, Thomas Merton would notice the same cultural dynamic accorded white racism, according white racism ethically normative status, even when it so egregiously violated the moral norms of white Christians' faith commitments. Merton says, quote, but we know from experience with other notorious historical forms of fanaticism that societies which experience their reality on this psychopathic level are precisely those whose members are most convinced of their own rightness, their own integrity, indeed their own complete infallibility. It is this experience of unreality as real and as something to be defended against objective facts and rights as though against the devil himself that produces the inferno of racism and race conflict." Unquote. As Alex Mikulich notes in our first chapter, the culturally dominant norms of whiteness mean that objective facts of the present and past, such as the viol violent violation of Christian belief in the creation of humans imago dei through the institutions of slavery and hyperincarceration, go unacknowledged. This phenomenon represents what Gregory Baum has called false consciousness, involving the broad-based cultural assumptions of objective, morally disordered patterns of behavior and institutionalized practices as normal, normatively right. Baum identifies false consciousness as an important manifestation of systemic sin. Similarly, blessed Pope John Paul II invoked the language of structures of sin to identify morally disordered economic and social systems that often function automatically, he wrote. Woolman's narrative adumbrates a path of Christian nonviolence as a spiritual discipline of resistance to slavery in the United States of his time 
that may offer a promising means of resisting forms of slavery in our contemporary context as well. Following Loic Waquant and Michelle Alexander, <clears throat> I regard the current system of hyperincarceration in the United States as a kind of neo-slavery. So in the face of this neo-slavery, I'm suggesting that the Beatitudes can provide uh, a guide in uh, spirituality of nonviolence to resist hyperincarceration specifically. As part of his commitment to nonviolence as a way of being in the world, Mahatma Gandhi cultivated the spiritual practice of reading the Sermon on the Mount every day. Along with Merton, he understood what many Christians have never grasped. The text of Matthew 5, chapter, one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 7, 28, and the Beatitudes in particular, provides a spiritual wellspring for the ascetical practice of nonviolence as a way of life. By correlating the Beatitudes with elements of the experience of woman and other exemplary practitioners of active nonviolence, the shape of a spirituality of contemplative nonviolent resistance emerges, one hopefully supple enough to grapple with the complexities of white privilege and hyperincarceration. In focusing on the outlines of a nonviolent spirituality of white resistance, there is a risk of once again reinforcing white cultural dominance. Here, the Beatitudes offer some hopeful and even salvific guidance. As Glenn Stassen has noted, the Beatitudes do not represent high ideals to be achieved through individual effort, one of the marks of dominant white culture. Rather, they point to, quote, God's gracious deliverance and our joyous participation. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we are blessed because God is not distant and absent. We experience God's reign and presence in our midst and will experience it even more in the future. Therefore, each beatitude begins and ends with the joy, the happiness, the blessedness of the good news of participation in God's gracious deliverance. I think he's talking about the sort of participation that John Twenty-Third had in mind in Pachamanteris. So that it's not just political participation, but political participation for the Christian will grow out of this deep sense of relationship with God and love. That's the ground of participating, of sharing our gifts as Christians and exercising the call of our discipleship as Christians. So the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. John Woolman grew in his capacity to mediate God's love transparently through a beatitudinal poverty that connoted material detachment as well as interior freedom marked by the humility of the meek. Jesus' way involves pursuit of truth as part of liberation. And this process begins first of all with interior freedom, encompassing the depth and breadth of one's whole manner of being in the world. Perceptively, James Douglas poses a question to himself and to all who take up the path of nonviolence. How far would we like to go in? He actually borrows this question from Bob Dylan in his album, John Wesley Harding. How far would we like to go in? For white people trying to face the truth of white complicity in the system of hyper-incarceration, with its reverberations in every aspect of US society, housing, education, access to healthcare, this question serves as a portal to the spiritual discipline or ascesis of a nonviolent spirituality of white, white resistance to hyperincarceration. For his part, John Woolman gradually developed a spiritual asceticism of nonviolence that sought to affirm the dignity of all human life 
by stripping away all enslaving attachments. He declined lodging and transportation provided at the cost of exploitation. He shunned dyed clothing, sugar, and the use of silver vessels due to the oppressive labor conditions by which they were wrought, and he refused to pay war taxes. Over time, he chose to limit his own income as a means of cultivating spiritual freedom by deepening his friendship with God. Faced with a dominant culture characterized by a voracious desire to possess not only goods but people as well, Woolman became convinced of the power of God's love to free humanity by stoking a desire to love what God loves. He wrote, there is a love which stands in nature and a parent beholding his child in misery hath a feeling of, of the affliction, but in divine love, the heart is enlarged towards humankind universally and prepared to sympathize with strangers, though in the lowest stations of life." Unquote. Speaking at the Riverside Church in New York City one year to the day before his assassination, with the carnage of the Vietnam War riding, rising to a bloody crescendo, Martin Luther King Jr. drew the systemic connection among militarism, materialism, and racism, putting his finger on the cultural assumptions of whiteness that underpinned slavery, sped the, desi the drive toward the Vietnam War, and still persist in the, in the present US context in the form of hyper-incarceration. Advocating a radical revolution of values in the United States, King urged, quote, we must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered." Unquote. Writing just a few years earlier, Thomas Merton also noticed that both the national defense system and systemic racism in the US involve the sacrifice of the person and personal rights to systemic interests. Quote, it is not really the person and his rights who come first, but the system, not flesh and blood, but an abstraction. Ultimately, all persons' interests are superseded in the dominant white U.S. culture by the interests of business, Merton rightly perceived. He, write, he writes, it seems to me that we have little genuine interest in human liberty and in the human person. What we are interested in, on the contrary, is the unlimited freedom of the corporation. When we call ourselves the free world, we mean first of all the world in which business is free. And the freedom of the person comes only after that because in our eyes, the freedom of the person is dependent on money." Unquote. I think it feels like he's writing to us today. Um, in drawing these systemic connections and living out their implications, King and Merton had a kindred spirit in Dorothy Day, co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. To those who objected to her pacifism during World War II, Dorothy pointed out the passivity of comfortable US Americans in the face of the race and class wars ravaging their society while the World War raged, as if these manifestations of violence were not of a piece. Voluntary poverty was an essential component of her active nonviolence because with the mystics she understood the spiritual interrelationship of possession, violence, and ego. As Dorothy Sola noted in her work, The Silent Cry, a fortress of ego undergirds human attachment to material goods, facilitating use of violence in defense of possessions. 
In the white-knuckled grip of possessions, one comes finally to the point of being completely possessed by them, ultimately forfeiting one's very identity to them. On the other hand, Sola notices, quote, becoming empty or letting go of the ego possession and violence is the precondition of the creativity of transformative action. Thus, following John of the Cross's insight that the fullness of love unfolds along the way of nothingness, Day turned to Therese of Lisieux as an exemplar who witnessed the truth of stripping oneself of attachment to material things and to the very self. Of Therese's response to the trials and daily pinpricks of convent life, Day wrote, quote, she knew she had to die in order to live and that every wound meant a killing of the ego, unquote. Therese herself described such detachment as true poverty of spirit. The ascetic discipline of dying to self is at the heart of a nonviolent spirituality of resistance to racism. As Brian Massengale put it, quote, racial solidarity is a paschal experience, one that entails a dying of the false sense of self and a renunciation of racial privilege so as to rise to a new identity and a status that is God-given, unquote. In the Birmingham civil rights protests, Merton found a call to white people to embark upon personal conversion and structural transformation. That witness of nonviolent resistance undertaken by children, among others, called whites to recognize, Merton writes, that the cancer of injustice and hate which is eating white society is only partly manifested in racial segregation with all of its consequences. It is rooted in the heart of the white man himself." Unquote. If white people were truly to internalize this loving, courageous witness, Merton was convinced, they would cease to be the people they were. They would have to die to everything which was familiar and secure. They would have to die to their past, to their society with its prejudices and inertia, die to its false beliefs. Like Woolman, King, and Day, Merton readily grasped that the Paschal journey would entail a total transformation of white habitus manifested in both its interior and exterior dimensions. <clears throat> Considering the implications of the web of complicity represented by the giant triplets of racism, militarism, and materialism, True human freedom for each and every person in U.S. society will involve just this sort of personal and structural transformation. It is indeed the Paschal mystery to which Jesus invites his followers. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. A disposition, a disposition of mourning, the almost total separation from God's love entailed by systemic racism, enables those complicit in white privilege to begin to notice the depth of loss at stake in hyper-incarceration. In his own day, contemplating the devastating reality of slavery and the morally corrupt sense of white superiority underlying it, Woolman grieved this structural violence out of a profound sense of God's mourning for God's own creation. Writing in his journal of, of slaves he encountered on a visit to Quakers in Virginia in 1757, he records, these are a people by whose labor the other inhabitants are in great measure supported, and many of them in the luxuries of life. These are people who have made no, no agreement to serve us and who have not forfeited their liberty, liberty that we know of. These are souls for whom Christ died, and for our conduct toward them, we must answer before that almighty being who is no respecter of persons. They who know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent 
will therein perceive that the indignation of God is kindled against oppression and cruelty. And in beholding the great distress of so numerous a people, will find cause for mourning." Unquote. Institutionalized desecration of God's creation, Imago Dei, elicits divine mourning. It is a systemic violation of God's justice. As Woolman perceived, systematic dehumanization clearly involves what Amartya Sen has identified as capability deprivation. Stripped of the opportunity to develop one's gifts and talents fully, the oppressed person is deprived of full human flourishing. The system of hyper-incarceration entails wholesale intergenerational devastation visited particularly upon U.S. black males between the ages of 15 and 24 and upon their families in the form of intellects undereducated or miseducated by the system of internalized dom domination, marriages broken or foregone altogether, children unborn, children without fathers, jobs lost, health deteriorated, and lives shortened. Can white people mourn this devastation as our own and accept our complicity in it? Can we understand the flourishing of each and every human being in society as intimately interconnected and bound up with our, our own integral well-being? In his 1987 encyclical, John Paul II spoke of the virtue of solidarity as, quote, not a feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many. On the contrary, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good that is to say to the good of all and of each individual, because we are all really responsible for all." Unquote. This thick account of the common good must ground the understanding of racial justice as part of a nonviolent spirituality of white resistance. Woolman, over the course of his life, came to understand himself in deep and interdependent relationship with each person and every person. He appealed to his fellow Quakers for the abolition of slavery from the standpoint of the oppressed out of a profound grief. As a practitioner of nonviolence, he was determined not to contribute to the further suffering, to their further suffering, and to dedicate his energies toward dismantling the structures of oppression. He might well have embraced as his own Joseph Barnes' insight about white cultural racism. Barnes writes, I am suggesting that our white racial identity is an imprisoned identity. When we examine white cultural identity, we are asking how whiteness has been a source of injury and harm, not only for people of color, but also for ourselves as white people. The cultural curtain has harmed not only people of color by locking them out, but has also harmed us by locking us in." Unquote. For those of us complicit in white oppression of people of color, beatitudinal mourning must involve the sort of death to self witnessed by Woolman, Douglas, and Day. It is a death to the selfish love incarnated in white habitus. Massengale writes, quote, for the beneficiaries of white privilege, lament involves the difficult task of acknowledging their individual and communal complicity in the past and present racial injustices. It entails hard acknowledgement that one has benefited from another's burden and that one's social ad advantages have been purchased at a high cost to others." Unquote. As part of the spiritual discipline of nonviolent white resistance, it will involve the dynamic unfolding of personal conversion as part of structural transformation. James Perkison poses a challenge, quote, practically for most white people today, 
Anti-racist conversion implies at least some measure of real material contraction expressed as a form of social expansion. It implies pursuing a more equal circulation of assets, opportunities, and power that will simultaneously be experienced as a form of real loss. Sharing control is also giving up control, at least in the moment of fear." Unquote. Stassen turns to Clarence Jordan's translation of this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Clarence Jordan understood this to mean, joyful are those who are deeply saddened to the point of action, for they will be comforted." Unquote. The Greek word pentuntis, often translated as mourning, means both deep sadness and repentance, Jordan noticed. Quote, Christians who pray for God's reign to come are all the more aware that what is happening in themselves and their society is far from God's reign. Their prayer life compares God's compassion for all people with the suffering, violence, injustice, and lack of caring that hurt people. They are realists as to the cause of the wrong. They truly want to end their sinning and serve God." Unquote. A scripture scholar with an agricultural background, Clarence Jordan founded an interracial cooperative pecan farm called Koinonia in his native Georgia in 1942 in an effort to dismantle racist culture and practices through gospel-inspired communal solidarity and participation. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Woman's experience seems to confirm an insight of Merton, namely, integrity and humility amount to practically the same thing. Freed interiorly to be true to oneself before God, the humble person becomes radically free for relationship with the rest of God's creation. In the concrete practice of nonviolence, Humility, rooted in radical trust in God's love, enables one to refuse any resort to evil or suspect means, Merton insisted. Conceiving of humility as steps of spiritual progress on the ladder of earthly life, leading toward that, quote, perfect love of God which casts out fear, uh, Benedict of Nursia contrasted the ascent in humility with the downward journey of pride. As part of temperance, Aquinas observed, humility serves to restrain the movement <coughs> of passion evidenced by preoccupation with earth, earthly greatness. Humility mainly concerns one's subjection to God, for whose sake he also submits himself to others. Beatitudinal meekness, then, Merton wrote, frees one, quote, to renounce the protection of violence and risk being humble, therefore vulnerable, not because he trusts in the supposed efficacy of a gentle and persuasive tactic, that will disarm hatred and tame cruelty, but because he believes that the hidden power of the gospel is demanding to be manifested in and through his own person." Unquote. Proceeding from a humble place of being true to that of God and in oneself and others in the very concrete circumstance of his context of white cultural dominance, John Woolman was able to come to a fundamental insight of nonviolence as a path of spiritual resistance. Interior liberation represents the work of God's love and the precondition for detachment from material goods and right relationship among humans. <coughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Stassen raises the real concern that in U.S. culture, righteousness may easily be heard as self-righteousness, 
exactly the opposite of what is meant by this beatitude. He advocates the use of restorative justice instead of righteousness here to convey a twofold understanding of the sort of justice at stake. He writes, it means delivering justice, justice that rescues and releases the oppressed, and community restorative justice, justice that restores the powerless and the outcast to their rightful place in the covenant community. This is why the hungry and the thirsty hunger and thirst for righteousness. They yearn bodily for the kind of justice that restores them to community where they can eat and drink. Woman's witness also reveals the power of keen contemplative awareness capable of rigorous systemic analysis springing from his hunger and thirst for righteousness. In his refusal to draft the slaveholder's will, Woolman engaged in a, in a careful discernment of the moral truth at stake. Like Gandhi's experiments with truth two centuries later, he used the ethical dissonance that emerged in this experience as fertile ground for imagining and generating an alternative response when faced with a similar situation in the future. That method in time would unfold as a creative new way of life, one attuned to Woolman's increasingly refined conscience and rooted in his faith-based commitment to nonviolence. He repeatedly decried the culture of white greed and sloth undergirding the slave trade, naming the systemic moral degradation, feeding the voracious cultural reproduction of white dominance. The neo-slavery of hyper-incarceration uses the prison as a powerful race-based mechanism of cultural, social, political, legal, and economic exclusion. But those benefiting from the system of hyperincarceration through white privilege create for ourselves an interior form of bondage, constituted by the four walls of isolation, lies, amnesia, and addiction to white domination that Joseph Barnt has outlined in his work. We white people, the slave masters, are ourselves enslaved and cut off from the liberating energy of God's love. More than two centuries later in the heat of the civil rights movement, Merton argued, quote, American society has to change before the race problem can be solved, unquote. He named clearly the need for white people to see the black struggle for civil rights as a manifestation of a deep disorder that is eating away the inner substance of our society because it is in ourselves. <clears throat> Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. A test for the integrity of one's practice of nonviolence, Merton held, is are we willing to learn something from the adversary? Through an open, dialogical, and non-defensive approach, the practitioner of nonviolent white resistance participates in the power of God's mercy to soften the hardened heart, beginning with one's own. Eileen O'Brien re recounts the view of Vanessa, an anti-racist activist of color, regarding qualities in white activists that en engender her trust and open up the possibility of authentic relationship. Quote, I look for that self-analysis. I look for a willingness to take whatever criticisms I may have without being defensive. Sort of accepting that and being willing to have the conversation that that might be true, unquote. As Barbara Applebaum argues, this sort of humble openness to self-interrogation is essential for white exploration of our complicity in racism. She recounts the narrative of one of her African-American students, quote, she said that it was difficult for the white students in class to imagine what it is like to wake up every morning and walk into a world where skin color alone might determine who one is perceived to be, 
and how one is treated. She explained that she, she must be constantly vigilant to survive in such a world, one in which she never knows when she might be treated as black. Given this, isn't it important for white people to develop a corresponding, although not, not comparable, all alertness because the effects of whiteness are, are so often indiscernible to us or them." Unquote. For white people, mercy involves compassionate alertness to the perspective and experience of the oppressed and suffering person. Letting that reality transform and inform our understanding of what God's merciful love requires. Woolman came to grips with his own complicity and that of the Society of Friends in the Institution of Slavery and systemic economic ex exploitation of laborers across the empire of his time, first by allowing the experiences of particular oppressed people, black slaves, and other exploited workers to reshape his own way of life. Out of this changed pattern of behavior and social location, he engaged his fellow and sister Quakers in loving but challenging communal discernment of complicity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Mahatma Gandhi's grandson Arun remembers vividly how he learned of the centrality of penance as part of the self-purification essential for one who practices nonviolence. As a teenager growing up in South Africa, he failed to fulfill a promise he had made to his father and then lied about it. That evening when he went to pick his father up and drove him 18 miles back to their home, his father confronted him about the deception. Quote, I am sorry you lied to me today. Obviously, I did not instill in you the confidence and courage to tell the truth without fear. I must do penance for my shortcoming, so I am going to walk home, Unquote. Arun trailed slowly after him in the car for five and a half hours along dark dirt roads, absorbing the painful reality of his father undertaking an arduous penitential practice on his account. Arun's father and grandfather both firmly held that the practitioner of satyagraha, or truth force, ought not to seek to impose penance on others, but rather to undergo it oneself. Through this practice, little by little, one comes face to face with all the manifold impulses toward the violence of dominative power within one's own heart and way of being. To resist and encounter truly the powers, James Douglas affirms, becomes a process of acknowledging that I am a major source of their power to kill others. The white privilege that justifies and maintains the system of hyperincarceration rests upon a radical distortion of the imago dei, the human being's self-understanding as created in God's own image. That disfigurement begins first within the soul and psyche of the white person. And so the work of nonviolence and disarming white privilege must start there. This process of self-purification serves to strip away the false self, freeing one to receive God's love ever more transparently and to cooperate with its dynamic, inexorable movement to restore the brokenness caused by sin. Accepting violence within myself becomes part of my yes to go deeper in my commitment to the path of Jesus' love in disarming social systems of domination. Without rootedness in God's love for God's own creation, a gratuitous and infinitely forgiving love. Douglas predicts that the nonviolent resistor's path will end either in self-hatred or in self-righteousness. For Christians, Jesus reveals the path of self-emptying love for those desiring to become pure of heart. 
Along the way, Dorothy Day discovered, quote, the love of God and the human being becomes the love of equals as the love of the bride and the bridegroom is the love of equals. The relationship we hope to attain to is that of the love of the canticle of canticles. If we cannot deny the self in us, kill the self-love as he has commanded us and put on the Christ life, then God will do it for us. We must become like God. Love must go through these purgations. This process of purification as part of a spirituality of nonviolent resistance to racism takes a very concrete incarnate form. White people have much to learn from the witness of Dr. King and the other nonviolent activists who took to the streets in Birmingham in 1963. Before taking direct action, their preparations involved self-purification. King recalled, quote, we started having workshops on nonviolence and repeatedly asked ourselves the questions, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeals of jail? Unquote. As a spiritual discipline, Beatitudinal purity of heart holds the potential to turn the system of hyperincarceration on its head. Are white people willing to suffer physical imprisonment ourselves as a consequence of meeting systemic violence and racial hatred with love? Spiritually, this may be a necessary implication of interior liberation from the prison of white racism. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The blessing of peacemakers envisions restoration of the humanity of all involved in a situation of systemic dehumanization. For US white people, hyperincarceration mirrors the evil within us. Active nonviolence invites us to hold that growing awareness of our own sinful complicity and structures of white privilege, together with a related question, how can I find God in my enemy? That question takes us, if we are honest, deep within ourselves. A spiritual esquisis of nonviolent white resistance creates space for the practitioner to fa face the darkness within one's own heart. Over time, it becomes more and more possible to place my trust not in my own capacity to disarm the violence within and without, but rather in the infinite power of the spirit of God's love at work in the world, continually healing and reconciling creation. This contemplative spiritual practice is essential for coming to a free, loving, white racial identity. <clears throat> Rooted in the ascesis of gospel nonviolent love, US white people can strive in solidarity with other human beings in the beloved community and find our lives in God by losing them. Only then can we take the next step on the spiritual path of nonviolence as Jesus, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. and Dorothy Day practiced it, to seek the opponent's good by freeing that person from oppressive actions. As a US white person, the first oppressor to be freed is myself. And it is God who by grace liberates each person through love. Spiritually, how do I surrender to God's vast unrelenting gift of merciful love? By grace, ultimately, but through the spiritual ascesis of nonviolent resistance, I can learn to wait and listen for God's movement in a spirit of open surrender. <clears throat> blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you 
Contemplating the meaning of nonviolent resistance, Merton understood the larger horizon at stake in these last two Beatitudes. Against the background of the reign of God, one can better discern the demands of the truth of Jesus' love in very concrete everyday circumstances. Nonviolence, he wrote, is perhaps the most exacting of all forms of struggle, not only because it demands, first of all, that one be ready to suffer evil and even face the threat of death without violent retaliation, but because it excludes mere transient self-interest, even political, from its considerations. In a very real sense, he who practices nonviolent resistance must commit himself not to the defense of his own interests or even those of a particular group. He must commit himself to the defense of objective truth and right and above all of the human being." Unquote. Naming and dismantling structures of racism emerges clearly as a claim of truth and right upon all Christians in US society, especially upon white Christians as beneficiaries of systemic racism. A spirituality of nonviolent white resistance to hyperincarceration will involve total and trusting surrender to God's love. And this will include acceptance of persecution in the spirit of solidarity with all human beings who suffer, particularly the most vulnerable and oppressed. <coughs> Rooted in profound respect for the dignity of each and every person, nonviolent resistance appeals to the human freedom of the would-be adversary. Instead of forcing a decision upon him from the outside, Merton wrote, it invites the adversary, the would-be adversary, to arrive freely at a decision of his own in dialogue and cooperation in the presence of that truth which Christian nonviolence brings into full view by its sacrificial witness. The key to nonviolence is the willingness of the nonviolent resistor to suffer a certain amount of accidental evil in order to bring about a change of mind in the oppressor and awaken that person to openness and to dialogue." Unquote. Echoing Dr. King's Riverside Church address, Merton noted that the person-oriented approach of nonviolence focuses not on control, but rather on appealing to human dignity by awakening one's free response to love. Writing from the Birmingham City Jail, King chose to respond to a letter from white and outwardly free Alabama clergy objecting to his practices of nonviolent resistance. In a tone of gentle but direct and challenging love, King noted, quote, you deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham. But I am sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being, unquote. Though incarcerated bodily, Dr. King appealed from a place of deep spiritual freedom, rooted in God's love, to his white fellow clergy, recognizing their spiritual, mental, and emotional bondage. As a counterexample to complacent white Christian ecclesial practice that so readily reinforced institutionalized racism, King called their attention to the nonviolent witness of the early Christians. In whatever town they entered, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. The persecution they suffered came as they responded to God's invitation to love God's creation as God loves it. Contemplating the witness of the king and the Birmingham protesters can be an ascetical spiritual practice of nonviolent resistance in the face of hyperincarceration. Viewed against the horizon of God's reign, 
What collective action of resistance do the current signs of the times demand of anti-racist white people? Brian Massengale turns to the work of Joe Fegan to name the sort of transformative love that becomes manifest, quote, when whites intentionally place themselves, if only partially, into the racist world of the oppressed and thereby not only receive racist hostility from whites, but also personally feel some of the pain that comes from being enmeshed in the racist conditions central to the lives of the oppressed others, unquote. Stassen recalls that the Koinonia community in Georgia has endured racist drive-by shootings with a visiting Dorothy Day among their targets, business boycotts and expulsion from the local Southern Baptist worship community. Nevertheless, Koinonia went on to incubate Habitat for Humanity and it continues to thrive in the present day. As the name Koinonia suggests, this anti-racist and multiracial community of nonviolent resistance set its sights on the larger horizon of the trans transformative love of God's reign, enabling them to persevere in right relationship, attempting to love their oppressors into openness to God's liberating love. So coming to an end here. John Woolman, Martin Luther King Jr., Clarence Jordan, Dorothy Day, Thomas Burton, the young Birmingham marchers, Gandhi and his grandson, all these have given witness to the nonviolent spirituality of resistance that emerges so clearly in the Beatitudes. Rather than a strategy or technique, it represents a way of being in the world that in itself constitutes an act of resistance. Subverting the institutions and culture of white habitus the Beatitudes lead toward a radically anti-racist praxis. Poverty of spirit, mourning and lament, humility, a longing for restorative justice that leads to committed collective action, compassionate mercy, single-heartedness, peacemaking, and submission to the inevitable persecution that such practice will elicit. Thank you. Secondly, uh, something I'd like to tell the audience as well. We have two sociologists here, the chair of the sociology department, Bob Defina, and Lance Hannon. Lance is a criminologist. Bob is mostly an economist. 
who are writing a series of articles on how poverty causes crime, which I would translate into black poverty causes black crime. And they're very good and they're very bold. I asked him one time, social scientists like to say there's a high, there might be a high correlation between poverty and black crime, but they wouldn't say caused. They say caused. Uh, I'd like to call that the attention of the students because it very much supports the talk we just heard of how there's injustice done in the black community. By the way, one of the points they make is that the hyper-incarceration uh, of blacks causes crimes because they're out of the community and all things happen when there's no fathers to raise sons and things like that. But uh, I'd like to tell you students to take a look at those two guys' writings and take their courses and thank you. Very good piece you just Thank you, Joe. And just to add to that, I, I didn't have time to get into other aspects of the social analysis of hyperincarceration that in our book Alex does in the first two chapters. So making the links um, following Loic Waquant from Jim Crow slavery to Jim Crow to ghettoization to hyperincarceration. But then the, the way in which the prison system and the uh, urban inner city uh, devastation feed each other. Also though, that that involves racial profiling, that it's not accidental that some of the same behavior that um, James Baldwin said, it's not that, um, that life in Harlem is more reprehensible than life in Scarsdale, it's that in Scarsdale you're covered, right? And if you look at the way in which drug laws have been enforced through the, the so-called drug war that Ronald Reagan commenced, um, statistically white people are the biggest drug users, but black people are the ones who are arrested disproportionately. And that's not accidental, that's systemic. Um, and, and part of it involves the concentration of black people in particular areas that makes racial profiling easier. Um, and then leads to all of the other issues like uh, poor housing leading to shorter lifespans ultimately, um, poor education, poor health care. Yeah. Um, one of the other points that, um, well, well, first of all, for those of you who are interested in what Joe was talking about, is a recent article of theirs, Lance Henning and Bob Defina, appeared in America Magazine uh, two months ago. But the other thing that it is made a point of, particularly their work in Philadelphia, et cetera, and both uh, involved in the Greater Prison Project, but, um, is the way in which, and you mentioned it somewhat, incarceration affects community life. Mm -hmm. That so much happens to those communities, uh, the families and the larger communities, when the men are taken out. Yeah. Um, that uh, they've written extensively on that, uh, which is uh, overwhelming. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing, I think, that, um, it occurred to me recently with this, uh, I forget your comment on the recent re-election of Barack Obama, it seemed that racism came very much to the surface in the whole pre-election process. References to Obama as the boy by Ann Romney and her husband as the adult, or signs 
uh, put white back in the White House. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we need to take our country back from what? Yeah, I mean, all it was just blatant. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was coupled with making the man, Obama, the other. And they were, it was a quite successful strategy. He's not American. He showed us your birth certificate, your grades, because you couldn't have gotten into Harvard by yourself. I mean, it was all of this as portraying him as not American, not fully American, not really American. And the reference is constantly to real America. It's racially linked. And yeah, it means white America. Of course it does. Yeah. And, but it backfired, I think, because they so, were so successful constantly making him the other that the majorities that put him back in office were all the other. <laughs> when you think about it, women, Asians, African Americans, Latinos, and those under 30 who understood. I, I mean, it's amazing. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, what also has amazed me is simultaneously there's all this discourse about being in a post-racial society. Uh, so it's kind of schizophrenic. Uh, and I think this gets to the feature of white habitus that um, wherein white, whiteness is invisible. Only only out of a stance of being totally ignorant of my own whiteness could I say that I live in a post-racial society uh, in the face of all of that. Can I uh, sort of further this line of discussion here too? Um, and this relates to the election and, and this schizophrenic you know, state that we're in in the United States. Um, but on Facebook, I saw sort of one of my friends who is incredibly conservative um, and she was a part of and promoted this organization called Freedom Works and in the course of that what came up on Facebook was just a portrait of George Washington okay and a quote from George Washington and it said now is the time that American men must decide if they are going to be free or live as slaves. That the use of Washington, the use of that quote to promote this idea of political freedom and what was essentially at work in the United States suggested to me that the concept of freedom, which is identified more with white people, black people, because black people are identified more as slaves, or criminals in the end, but that this sense of political freedom was, I don't have, my freedom means I don't have to care about other people. And that's why this reaction to Obamacare and all of these other things that whiteness is, I'm not black, I'm not a slave, I'm free, so I don't have to care about your humanity. And it seems like that is huge sort of, that's operating in your paper also, that sense of, it means we don't have to care. Right. And I think that's right at the heart of a, the, the spiritual work that needs to happen yeah. for me as a white person to recognize the way in which I am, in fact, dehumanized by white supremacy and not free 
and that this also is a form of interior bondage. Uh, and also to recognize our absolute and radical interdependence. Uh, that theologically, this is how God created God's creation. It, it's, um, it's designed to work interdependently. We, we need the trees to even breathe, and hum humans need each other uh, as social beings uh, to flourish and to, to encourage each other in our flourishing. Um, so that deep radical sense of the common good that John the 23rd so desperately wanted to communicate in Pachamanteris and uh, Mater Ligistra and then later in, in Vatican II, um, that the common good doesn't mean what's good for the majority and oh well if a few people go without housing or health care that's too bad. No, that it, it really is for each and for all and that the good of all is diminished if even one person lacks what is necessary for flourishing. I don't even think most Catholics, bless you, uh, operate as if that were true, <laughs> much less the rest of our society. Um, so that these aspects of white habitus that in our book we develop in the first couple of chapters, but include things like a presumption of individual autonomy uh, that, you know, and, and it's reinforced by these cultural myths of pulling yourself up by your bootstrap and the whole idea of manifest destiny that people just set off and did this by themselves, uh, it, it, it all reinforces that image. Yeah. And in all of those images, it's white people conquering anyone perceived to be other and then claiming those people and the land as property. Um, we identified also with American exceptionalism. America, uh, American is whiteness as exceptionalism and superiority. Superiority and dominance. Um, it, it's almost embarrassing to hear people use that language anymore because it's laden with such uh, oppressive metaphors. Uh, as if and it's, it, you know, it's a lot of hard work when you think about all the things and the people that you have to overlook to maintain that idea um, that to be American is white and that's the end of the story. When obviously that's not true, it means if I hold that belief, I have to exert a lot of energy every day to reinforce this alternative reality that I've created. And, and what am I hiding myself from? Right. Right, and that, that's a key, I think that's a key um, facet of a spirituality of nonviolence, just to uh, disarm that fear with God's love, to let God disarm the fear, so that we can look at these questions, not out there, but within, I can look at them within my own heart. That needs to happen first before I can ever participate in a social movement. Um, I just want to say I like your use of the Beatitudes as a reflection. Um, and, and, and a comment, too. I was surprised that you used the term black, not African-American. And um, I'm very aware of my European heritage. And so I, I guess sometimes I feel a little different than other people because it is this white. And even when you go to fill out a lot of forms, usually it'll say Hispanic-American, African-American, or white. Mm -hmm. You know, and I always find that a little peculiar. 
Yeah. This is just a comment about the terminology. Yeah, I think in our book we use both um, both terms. Um, uh, Partly, I think it's a function of the work that we're doing around hyperincarceration and the fact that it is so tied to skin color. Um, so using the term black helps to get at that issue that uh, there is, this is a function of how skin color is perceived and how that's politicized and criminalized. Um, so in the research, in the statistics, um, you see references to both African American and black. Um, the other thing about uh, ethnic identity as part of being white, um, Janet Helms at Boston College has a wonderful book called A Race is a Nice Thing to Have. And, and the subtitle is A Self-Help Guide um, for uh, Developing White Racial Identity or Understanding the White People in Your Life. And um, we're working through that right now in a book group at, uh, at the Center for Social Concerns at Notre Dame. Um, and it's the first time that I can ever remember having a discussion about race. And all but one of the people in the group is white. And I think a default position for many white people is to, to go back to our ethnic heritages. And that, that's part of our identity. But it often is done at the expense of owning my whiteness. And the way in which being white, all of these ethnic identities, Irish, German, Italian, Polish, became assimilated into whiteness and how that functions over against blackness. And very intentionally, I'm using those color terms because white then becomes connoted with good, pure, um, right, and, and blackness become, carries the connotation of evil, suspect, etc. So there is, a, I think, an, an, an intentional usage at work, um, not just in our book, but in the literature. So. Have, thank you for your talk. Have you come across uh, or discovered any new insights into how to introduce these concepts, uh, inviting particularly undergraduates into this? I think we, we're similar populations. And certainly we have students here that are very, very clearly open to um, the discovery of who they are within our world. But on the whole, we're not. Like, is my interpretation of it. Have, have you have any best practices or insights besides the experience of like either service experiences or, because I struggle with that, yeah. you know? Um, I do know. <laughs> yeah. I can really identify and empathize. Um, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, Barbara Applebaum's work, I, I mentioned that, but she's writing out of the um, context of education and educational theory. And she's done a lot of work in classrooms around educating uh, around racial identity and racial justice. So uh, I would recommend her work as something to assign in class and as a springboard for practices. One practice that I've started to use just recently is the peacemaking circle. And in the other chapter in this book that I wrote on a spirituality of nonviolence, it focuses on contemplative action. And the, the circle process is very powerful in, in that it helps to level power disparities and encourages participation, but doesn't force participation. 
which I think is an important feature in a discussion about race. Um, so that it requires very careful choice of the question that the, the keeper of the circle poses. And then the talking piece passes around and the person holding the talking piece is the only one speaking at that moment. But that person can pass. And that has been effective. We've used that um, just in this semester. We did a circle process training in the summer with Kay Pranis from Minnesota. And then um, I started using it in my classes this semester and we as a staff started to use it for students coming off their summer immersion experiences. Um, and we specifically asked them to address ways in which race was a factor in their experiences. Uh, so we're just beginning that, but I think it's very promising. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah, just to speak to that a little bit. Um, I think that um, there, is, I think you're absolutely right. There is like a, a substantial student body. I think that's like interested in this kind of self-discovery and like really going into this. But I think it's the frustrating part that like I've run into is like this other student body that's not. And I think that goes back to the practicality of education and like people, um, you know, coming to school with their mindset on what they want to do. They want to come. Um, and you know, there's like professional schools, professional tracks, and you know this this talk of like um, I don't know a revelation or, or seeing something else, self-discovery. That's like I think it's really frightening to some students, um, and then that turns them off to it. So I think I don't know. That's what, and I've, I've asked student like you know some of my friends about things like that, and that's the response I've gotten is that it's kind of like I don't know, they don't. They don't want to care because that means like changing their life plan, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's the tricky part about education. Yeah, it means we have to change. Darn. <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid that we've sort of run out of time at this point in time. So please, thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.